Chapter 5 of England in the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill. A Century of Unrest, 1307 through 1399. The story of the twenty years' reign of Edward's son, Edward of Carnarvon, shows how great a part the personality of the king still played in the English system. It is a sordid, yet withal tragic tale. The new king was almost as handsome and fine a man physically as his father, but utterly unlike him in character. He had not even the frivolous seriousness of Henry III. He frankly disliked the duties of kingship, and would refer matters of state to his good brother Piers. His favoritism to this Piers Gaveston, a Gascon, who had been practically his foster brother, was bitterly resented. Edward sent his father's body to Westminster, in spite of his request that it should be carried with the army to victory over the Scots. There was no such victory. Robert Bruce carried all before him, while Edward left the languid pursuit of the war to others. In 1314, public opinion forced him to march north to defend Stirling, the last great stronghold in English hands. The result was the great Scotch victory at Bannockburn, which decided Scotland's independence throughout the Middle Ages, a fact which Edward had to recognize by a formal truce ten years later. Edward hated war and had no knowledge of tactics. His method was a blind onslaught with his men-at-arms, his archery being wasted. The loss of Scotland formed but one element in Edward's unpopularity, which had grown steadily throughout his reign. The great nobles early formed an opposition, and that it proved so long futile was due to the fact that it was a baronial rather than a national resistance and the day of the great baronage was really over in the political sense. The leader was Earl Thomas of Lancaster, a violent and passionate man, relentless to resist but powerless to construct, the richest and greediest of all the English earls. Gaveston, who was not incompetent, and was certainly brave in spite of his frivolity, had been banished by Edward I. Twice again he was sent out of England, but always came back, in 1311, the old device of a reforming committee was revived. Twenty-one lords ordainers were appointed to reform the realm by their ordinances. The king was put in tutelage. The ordainers drew up a list of reforms, but gave their attention chiefly to revenge. Gaveston was captured and withdrawn from the hands of justice by the Earl of Warwick, whom he had nicknamed the Black Dog. He was summarily beheaded and Edward had to forgive the outrage, and was then given once more some degree of power. The defeat at Bannockburn made Edward very unpopular, and Lancaster practically seized the royal power for four years, but accomplishing nothing, lost the support of the nobles. Edward had now another chance. He gave his favors to Hugh Dispenser, a great baron and bitter enemy of Lancaster and to the younger dispenser of the same name. With their help, the baronial opposition was broken up, and Lancaster, taken in battle, was beheaded. He was the least worthy of the series of men who were reputed saints by popular acclamation. 
for he was no true patriot and had not even ability to justify his ambition the dispensers now ruled for edward but were ever seeking their own hand the time was ripe for a new opponent and such as one was found in the king's own household he had wedded in thirteen o eight isabella the twelve-year-old daughter of the french king and had consistently neglected her not the most amiable of wives after a quarrel she was foolishly allowed to cross on an embassy to her brother charles the fourth she got possession of the person of the young prince edward she was joined by roger mortimer a friend of earl thomas and her secret paramour with an army they landed in england and the baronage rallied to them the two dispensers fled but were caught and executed edward was forced to abdicate in favour of his son on the twentieth of january thirteen twenty seven and some months later was foully done to death in his prison at berkeley castle he was perhaps the most worthless of our kings for if he had not the malice neither had he the ability of john the tragedy of his fate is rendered more wretched by the sordid aims and unworthy character of his opponents for three years mortimer and isabella ruled england in their own interest then the young king seized power mortimer was executed at tyburn for the murder of the king and isabella retired into private life the strength of character of the boy of eighteen who effected this coup de main is obvious edward the third in his long reign of half a century showed himself in many ways the worthy grandson of edward the first he resembled his father and grandfather in physical type like edward the first he was full of great projects schemes indeed impossible to carry out yet the aims of the first edward were more feasible his grandson took but little interest in scotland and concentrated his efforts on an attempt to conquer france he was a great soldier but not a great general the period saw brilliant victories but ill-conceived campaigns and when all is said the attempt bore little fruit in territorial gain but it effected very considerable constitutional development in england edward was the very type of fourteenth-century knighthood which differed in a subtle way from that of the thirteenth century there was more of show and less simplicity less violence perhaps but the new refinement covered a more essential coarseness there was a new suavity in men's relations to each other which partly arose from frivolity thus it is that while edward the third resembled his grandfather in many ways his personality made a different impression of unreality and insincerity yet edward was quite as much a constitutional king as edward the first in fact he yielded more easily on many points partly from indifference his mind being set on other things yet edward did not begin the hundred years war with france as a mere knightly experiment the time was ripe for such a struggle france was being at last welded into a nation and the english possessions in the south were an anomaly force and guile had been repeatedly used to wrest them from the english kings and the great war was really fought to decide the perennial dispute there were minor causes of quarrel the french king had helped the scotch resistance to edward balloy whom edward had supported in the beginning of his reign in his seizure of the scotch crown during the minority of david bruce balliol's concessions to the english king lost him his popularity and his crown 
and the reinstatement of david marks the beginning of the alliance between france and scotland which was to outlast the middle ages moreover there were constant bickerings on the narrow seas between english and french sailors philippe the sixth was supporting his vassal the count of flanders in his attack on the great clothing towns which were the chief market for english wool nevertheless the spoken cause of the war was edward's claim to the french throne a claim which only the indeterminateness of medieval laws of secession made less ridiculous to that day than it is to ours it would be impossible here to describe the process of the war it was declared in thirteen thirty seven and edward made expensive and fruitless raids in the north of france against an enemy which would not fight him in the open in thirteen forty the english won a great naval battle at sluys the french fleet which had been prepared to invade england being annihilated the fight was one of the steps in the building up of england's great naval tradition but the battle was fought as a land battle the ships grappling and the men engaging in hand-to-hand fight french opposition by sea was nullified for twenty years a dispute over the breton secession gave edward another foothold in france but it was not till thirteen forty six when he abandoned allied troops and led an english army into the very heart of france that he achieved success marching on paris he was intercepted by the french king at crechet and won a brilliant victory by the tactics which became traditional the combination of men-at-arms on foot with longbow archers it was a democratic formation and it became traditionally successful against the heavy and immobile aristocratic cavalry of france it was symbolical of the national development which england had achieved in contrast with the feudalism which still dominated society in france calais was captured before the end of the campaign and the next few years were marked by a series of truces in thirteen fifty five edward's eldest son the black prince who had won his spurs at crecy made a great raid through languedoc and in the next autumn led an army ravaging towards the loire he was met at poitiers by an army under the new french king john the french seemed to have made an attempt to copy the english tactics but their armies were incorrigibly aristocratic the english won a great victory and king john was taken prisoner with the truce theatrically of the fourteenth century knight the prince waited personally on him at table king john came in honourable bondage to england and though he went back once to france when it was seen that she could not raise his ransom he came back again and died a prisoner the mere sketch of the war can give no idea of the misery it brought to france full of revolt and unrest the effects of the black death felt all over europe were aggravated there by the ravages of the englishman and all the miseries which war brings in thirteen sixty by the peace of Brittany, edward who never meant his claim to the throne to be taken seriously formally renounced it but the duchy of aquitaine in its largest interpretation equal to half of france south of the loire was formally yielded up to him as well as calais the duchy was placed under the government of the black prince who had won it in thirteen sixty four charles v became king of france an abler man than his father the black prince found aquitaine in its swollen form hard to hold 
and when in 1369 he went to Spain to win victories for the unworthy Pedro the Cruel, his French subjects appealed to the French king against his taxation. War broke out again. The black prince, returning ill from Spain, could no longer lead it. He strove, however, in the south, while John of Gaunt, his younger brother, repeated Edward's earlier raiding policy in the north. In 1370, the black prince stained his record by sacking Limoges, the chief town of the small district he had reconquered. It was a characteristic act of medieval cruelty, motivated by ungovernable passion. He returned incapacitated to England and died in 1377. His father had fallen into decrepitude, old like many medievals at sixty. During the next five years, England lost all she had won in France. The year 1375 found the victor of Cresci suing for peace. He claimed a truce. Meanwhile, depressed and broken in body and spirit, Edward had fallen on evil days at home. His reign had seen a steady development in the power of the commons, for Edward had needed immense funds, and this was always the nation's opportunity. It was becoming increasingly difficult for the king to live of his own, as expenses increased. Feudal aids were dwindling, and the profits from the royal domain and royal justice were inadequate. The king had the ancient customs and tried by separate negotiations with the merchants to extend his profits in this direction. In 1340, Edward conceded that no charge or aid should be imposed henceforth without the consent of Parliament. Twice later, Parliament checked the growth of indirect taxation by forbidding any charge to be set upon wool without its consent. Moreover, under Edward, all evasiveness in meeting the Parliament's petition was made impossible. They took the form of bills to which the king must answer definitely with consent or refusal. A certain advance was made in the direction of appropriation of supplies when money was definitely granted for the pursuance of the French war. Edward even conceded to Parliament the right to audit the national accounts, though this concession was made in the spirit of much of his compliance and became a dead letter. The control of Parliament over the executive hardly existed, though in the criticisms of the good Parliament at the end of the reign, a beginning was made even here. The Commons seemed to have been genuinely loath to give advice on foreign policy, and even when consulted excused themselves as too simple and ignorant to give counsel on such. The last few years of the reign, when Edward had fallen into senile decay, saw much corruption and maladministration. Two parties opposed each other in the state. The quarrel partook of the nature of a family dispute, but had some of the notes of a constitutional struggle. The chief man who had power with the king was his son John of Gaunt, Earl of Lancaster. The chief woman was Alice Perers, a mistress of a low type. Queen Philippa had died in 1369. Many motives combined towards the unpopularity of John of Gaunt. There was the failure of the French war, which he could not help. He was hated by the churchmen, for he was tainted, if not with a new heresy which was filling men's minds with wonder, certainly with anti-clericalism. He had caused the dismissal of the king's clerical ministers in 1371, and William of Wykenham, Bishop of Winchester, 
the famous patron of learning who had been chancellor was one of his chief opponents john of gaunt was not a bad man but he was ambitious beyond his abilities and he had certainly given countenance to the unworthy dependents who surrounded edward the opposition to his influence came to a head in the good parliament of thirteen seventy six it had the support of the black prince who died while it was in session it presented a hundred and forty petitions and though none of its work was put into permanent form the claims it put forward remain on record and formed a valuable precedent it fell back on the old device of appointing a council of supervision the court was cleared of the worthless favorites but next year john of gaunt was able to pack a parliament through the sheriffs he had already by royal edict declared the acts of the previous parliament null and void he had even brought alice Perrers back and she was there to steal the jewels from the corpse of edward ere it was cold the king died on the twenty first of june thirteen seventy seven the minority of richard the second the black prince's son reads almost like a chapter out of the last years of edward's life after a brief period of retirement john of gaunt had chief influence in the state the government was weak taxation was heavy the french were harrying the very coast of england yet pride forbade a peace forces which had been at work all through the century now exploded the fourteenth century in its social economic and in a minor degree its religious life presents a deep contrast to the centuries which had gone before the passivity which had marked the lower strata of the population gave place to a new self-consciousness which is almost modern indeed the age is full of anticipations of modern things though these must not be overemphasized much which arrests the attention of the historian was but transitory and there was indeed less of this spurious modernity in the next century when the medieval system was indeed fast breaking up the notes of the new unrest are the social and economic agitations partly resultant on the recurrent visitations of the black death and linked with the incipient forces of heresy in religion represented by john wycliffe and his followers the black or foul death was a plague which three times in this century swept over europe from the east decimating populations and causing untold misery to an age which had no sanitary science it came to england in thirteen forty nine thirteen sixty one and thirteen sixty nine the mysterious scourge had created almost as deep an impression on posterity as on its own age but it is not so much a determining as an arresting factor in english economic history it has been estimated that it swept away half the english population which the most generous computation estimates at five millions and the most grudging at two and a half so that even on the more liberal estimate the whole population of england did not equal that of london today it has been estimated that the population of a large borough in the middle ages would be from five hundred to one thousand all told the immediate and obvious consequence of the plague was a scarcity of labor corn ripened and rotted for want of reapers and a general depression threatened the landowners tradition used to tell how these strove to undo a process which had been going on and in fact was almost completed before the visitation the commutation of feudal service for money payment in fact this process had been going on but was far from completed 
with the depletion of the laborers labor was now becoming more valuable than money but the evidence goes to show that it was the villain rather than the lord who was the innovator in the economic disputes of the period it is hardly thinkable that the landowners could attempt to revive obsolete rights on the other hand the great demand for his labor must have compelled the villain irresistibly to push further the system of commutation moreover the class of paid laborers which had grown up as a natural corollary to commutation demanded higher wages as the market widened in the years following the first visitation of the plague parliament strove with true medieval blindness to the irresistible character of economic forces to stay up the cause of the landowner as against the laborers and to settle the rate of wages throughout the land but in vain the landowners themselves evaded the statutes of laborers and paid the higher rate the process of commutation was hastened rather than retarded for a lord would sometimes commute labor service so as to keep the villain on his holding for one effect of the century's unrest was to make the population more mobile the black death really gave a further impetus to forces already at work and the disorganization aided in the growth of the new self-consciousness which marked the times apart from the actual physical misery of sickness the trading and laboring classes profited rather than suffered the former by a general rise in prices the latter by the rise in wages the real sufferers were the landowners who now tended to abandon the old system of farming their demesse through bailiffs and let portions out to tenant farmers who became the common type of the agricultural population thus feudalism which had been practically eliminated from political life became an attenuated element in the economic structure nevertheless the age was full of discontent strange new heretics were seen flagellating themselves in the streets of london john wycliffe at oxford was formulating his dictum that dominion is founded on grace which when it filtered through to the people was translated into bad men should be deprived of their property john ball known as the mad priest of kent was preaching a socialist gospel from the text when adam daft and eve span who was then the gentleman the great medieval english poem piers the ploughman though chiefly a plaint on the moral decay of the age was also quarried for texts the religious element was certainly less marked than the social in the movement among the people it had its counterpart in the anti-clericism of john of gaunt who was a friend of wycliffe the anti-papal legislation which had marked the reign of edward had but a superficial connection with it in thirteen fifty one the statute of provisors forbade papal provision to english benefices and the first statute of primum ire was passed in thirteen fifty three forbidding men to draw out any of the realm in plea a blow aimed at papal jurisdiction a second and more famous statute of pre minore was passed in thirteen ninety three and extended in fourteen hundred but like much medieval legislation they express the ideal rather than the practice they form one manifestation of the growing sense of nationalism which was marked by the increasing use of english as their ordinary speech by the upper classes and which was shown in the blank refusal of the papal demand for the arrears of the tribute john had paid yearly to rome 
the anti-papal policy was partly anti-french for the papal seat being at avignon the popes were more or less under french influence it does not represent in any sense a breaking away from the spiritual authority of rome the new heresy for the most part reached only the lower classes and only a section of them the pent-up excitement of the times found most vivid expression in the peasants revolt of thirteen eighty one the spark which kindled the flame was a heavy poll tax with no adequate gradation of a shilling a head on all adult persons the commissioners who went out to revise the returns were met by risings everywhere they had in them a strange unanimity watchwords passed from village to village and gave an impression of elaborate organization but this is probably delusive the leaders were local agitators and the grievances were local and definite true john ball helped to inspire the kentish rising john wycliffe had sent out his poor priests in thirteen seventy eight to preach a simple gospel life but there is no real evidence that they took any part in the agitation though obviously they form one element the more tempting men from their routine the kentish men who marched upon london complained chiefly of misgovernment their grievances were political in essex and east anglia the social unrest found voice the demand was for freedom from villainage the isolated risings in the towns of the north and west had for the most part their origin in the discontent of the poorer citizens against the rule of an oligarchy the kentish revolt had most prominence the political nature of its aims is emphasized by the fact that the londoners opened their gates to the mob under watt tyler john of gaunt's palace of the savoy was wrecked with many other buildings the boy king rode out to meet watt tyler at mile end and gave the rebels the charters they demanded but tyler who must have been a mere demagogue went back into the city broke into the tower murdering the chancellor archbishop sudbury the treasurer and other officials the mob then turned to burning houses and slaying every official they could find completely alienating the neutral population next day the king met them again at smithfield when tyler proposed to him a complete socialist program probably meaning to follow up a refusal with further violence richard a slim handsome boy of fourteen was cool and collected and when tyler threatened one of the king's attendants with his dagger william walworth the mayor struck him dead with his cutlass richard with amazing courage held the bewildered mob in parley while walworth rode back into the city and returned with the militia the rebels seeing themselves caught in a trap and leaderless sulkily dispersed an army marched through essex and the rebels melted away many leaders were hanged john ball among the number parliament declared the king's charters null and void laying stress on the necessity of parliamentary consent to render them valid the revolt is one of the most picturesque incidents in the middle ages but its importance as a historical factor has been exaggerated it may have affected a temporary reaction against the process by which the serfs were becoming free but it was hardly appreciable in the next century serfdom is already an anachronism the general religious excitement too seems to have died down though larledy was a force in the land wycliffe in these years had been developing his doctrine and in his denial of transubstantiation was preaching heresy his teaching was condemned by a council at blackfriars but whether he recanted or not 
he was allowed to retire to his church at Lutterworth, where he died while hearing mass two years later. John of Gaunt threw off from him, for he would not countenance open heresy, but there was an anti-clerical tone at the court until the end of the reign. The Wycliffe's followers, the Lollards, were consistently hunted out and imprisoned. For three years after the peasants' revolt, the young king who had shown such precocious judgment was under tutelage. When he was emancipated, he resented the interference of his uncles. John of Gaunt went to Spain, but Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, his younger uncle, a factious and unscrupulous man, remained. Richard's complete confidence in Michael de la Pole, later made Earl of Suffolk, and the young noble Robert de Vere, who became Duke of Ireland, was resented. One was a wise, and neither were bad men, but Richard was extravagant in the honors he heaped upon them. He was lavish, too, in his expenditure, and petulant, and resentful of interference. The attack which Gloucester made was less a constitutional than a factious opposition, but Richard had to bow to it. In 1386, Gloucester, by an attack in Parliament, forced Richard to dismiss his ministers and accept a council of control. Suffolk was impeached, that is, presented by the House of Commons at the bar of the House of Lords, a process which the good Parliament had devised. It was imprisoned, but released by Richard in 1387. But Gloucester, supported by the Earls of Warwick, Arundel, Nottingham, and Henry of Derby, John of Gaunt's son, took up arms and defeated the small royalist army under Suffolk at Redcott Bridge. The five lords appealed the king's friends of treason. Suffolk and Oxford fled overseas. The merciless parliament found them and others of the king's friends guilty of treason, and eight or nine were executed. Richard, with admirable self-control, submitted to the inevitable and allowed himself to be subjected to a council. The next year he declared himself of an age to rule, and chose his own ministers. His conduct now was in strong contrast to his levity before. He chose William of Wykenham as his chancellor, and restored the appellants to his council in 1390. This period was marked by wise rule and a constitutional spirit. In 1396, Richard made a truce of 25 years with France, marrying Isabella, the seven-year-old daughter of the French king, his first wife Anne of Bohemia having died two years before. There had been a peculiarly deep affection between the king and his wife, and Richard was frenzied with grief. The new friendship with France marks a turning point in Richard's career. The whole character of his temper and policy changes. He may have been bitten with a fever of admiration for the despotism of the French kings and resolved to imitate it, or he may have been nursing for eight years the plan of a ghastly revenge. Either explanation seems inadequate, and the psychology of this crisis remains perhaps the greatest mystery in medieval history. The suggestion that Richard's mind was unhinged is a plausible solution. The facts are flagrant enough. In the Parliament, which met in January 1397, a member, Haxey, was condemned as a traitor for complaining of court extravagance. Richard affected to believe that the appellants designed new treason. Gloucester was arrested, sent overseas, and murdered at Calais. The Earls of Warwick and Arundel were executed. The Archbishop Arundel, 
the brother of the earl vanished the earls of derby and nottingham had posed recently as friends of richard and were made dukes of hereford and norfolk respectively in the next year a packed parliament delegated its powers to a committee of the king's friends after granting richard a life revenue in the autumn of this year hereford and norfolk were banished from the realm on a frivolous pretext and the king's revenge was complete the action of the parliament was most alarming and the possibility of such submissiveness on the part of the representatives illustrates the limitations of parliamentary development richard seems to have contemplated a despotism very much like that developed later by the tutors but only complete exhaustion made the tudor despotism possible and england was yet to see a century of struggle and experiment richard's rule meanwhile was most arbitrary fines and loans were raised on every side his violent language his argument against his sanity his misrule did not last long while he was absent in ireland in the summer of thirteen ninety nine he was one of the few medieval kings who had any statesmanlike idea of its government henry of derby accompanied by archbishop arundel came back to claim his forfeited duchy of lancaster so many rallied to his cause that he dared more and claimed the throne to himself richard returned hastily but made no adequate resistance he seemed completely confused and demoralized and within three weeks consented to abdicate on condition that his life should be spared and an honourable livelihood granted to him henry of bolingbroke claimed the throne by right of descent and conquest the former ground was impossible for his father was the third son of edward the third and richard's direct heir as he had no children was the child edmund of march descended from lionel duke of clarence edward's second son the claim on the ground of conquest was insulting henry's real strength was that he had the nation at his back worried even of richard's caprice he is the least consistent figure in the role of english kings extravagant even effeminate in his tastes loving the eccentricities of dress which the age developed he yet gives occasional glimpses of seriousness of purpose it is difficult to forget his reckless boy's courage in face of the peasant mob and apart from his revenge on the appellants who had dealt so mercilessly with his friends no act of cruelty can be laid to his charge the pusillanimity of his abdication is almost redeemed by his dignified conviction that he could not put off the ghostly honour of the royal anointing he died within a year probably done to death if not by violence by the more insidious method of privation it is to be noted that the lancastrian revolutions as well as the dynastic struggles of the next century was precipitated by edward the third's policy of gathering up great earldoms into the hands of members of the royal family he sought to disarm baronial opposition relying on the strength of family feeling he was utterly mistaken the struggles of the fifteenth century were chiefly in the nature of a family quarrel richard was the first victim of the mistake with the accession of henry the fourth begins a new period separated by marked differences from the fourteenth century if the story of that century has loomed in sombre colours it must be remembered that it had other aspects against the melancholy plaints of the authors or authors of piers the ploughman must be set the more perfect poetry of chaucer with its new joyousness and humour which must have had its counterpart somewhere 
in the national life. End of chapter 5